welcome, and thank you for listening to the Bellevue Sermon Podcast. Today's message comes to you from the pulpit of Bellevue Baptist Church in Gadsden, Alabama, through our Sunday morning preaching ministry. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you, and that the Lord would use it for His glory. Well, amen. As we continue our sermon series through 1 Timothy this morning, uh, go ahead and be turning to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Again, that is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. And uh, as you're turning, I'd like to share a, story, a short story with you this morning by way of introduction. A Messianic Jew, an expert on New Age and witchcraft, and a Southern Baptist pastor walk into a Thai restaurant. This is not the beginning of a bad joke. It was a real Friday afternoon for me. If you have not figured out, I was the Southern Baptist pastor in this whole matter. Now, all of us in this are believers in Christ. uh, But we all had different backgrounds. And uh, we had different areas of research. And so that afternoon, over pad thai and tea, we listened and we discussed and we walked through the nature of each's understanding of rules and the law. My Messianic Jewish friend described the traditional Jewish viewpoint, which says that all the hope is in fulfilling the law of God. Do this and this and this, and don't do that, and you'll be saved. He talked about things like dietary laws and ritual bathings and why he didn't eat the maple bacon donut we gave him that morning. The expert on witchcraft and New Age went next, and he explained that basically morality for them is relative. You do you. Whatever you think is right, that is is where it's at. What's right for one person is not necessarily right for someone else. It, It all depends, and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. We've heard these kinds of things before. None of this should be new for us, but as we we think about this and we think about those kind of two opposite viewpoints, right? The, the, the viewpoint of Judaism, which says do this and don't do that and be saved based on your fulfillment of the law. And then the, just the radical stuff of the modern era, which is relativism and says you just do whatever you think is right in the moment. We recognize that both of those are problems. But what about the Southern Baptist in this situation? If I asked you to explain how we are to live, what's the approach to God's law. How are we to use it? What would you say? You know, we live in a world where more and more false teachers are suggesting that that we just throw the Old Testament away. We forget about it. It's not relevant. It's it's in fact it's it's irrelevant to our life in every way. There's no reason to worry about that anymore. On the other hand, Scripture teaches us that the law has not passed away and that we are to teach the whole counsel of God. I say all this to just point out there's a great deal of confusion about the nature of the law, the way that it is to be applied and taught and thought about. But we need to get down to the bottom of this. How do you use the law? When you read the Old Testament, is it just history? Or does it have something to say to us today? I want to explore this in our text together 
Our sermon is titled, Laws for Using the Law, this morning. And we're going to see some powerful truths that will help us understand how to best use God's law, how to apply it to our life in a way that is relevant and meaningful and true. And so, if you are physically able and willing, would you please stand in honor and reverence for the reading of God's holy word. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-11. through 11 reading from the ESV, but you follow along in your translation. Paul says this, Now we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, or for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we thank you so much for the goodness of your word. And Lord, we realize that cover to cover, your word is true, it is faithful, it is inerrant and infallible. Lord, in all of it, you are speaking to us, you're teaching us who you are and what you expect from us. And so, Father, as we look into this word this morning, as we discuss the nature of your law, Father, we pray that you would just speak into our lives. You would show us where we have fallen short of your word. You would convict us of that. You would encourage us and strengthen us in biblical faithfulness. Help us to be people who love you and love your word more. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us now. Lord, your word would come alive to us, that as we look at this word, as we hear the truth of the gospel, Lord, as we hear the truth of our sin, that you would again move and work in our life and you would mold us and shape us into people that would be pleasing to you. And so, Father, we pray that your will would be done, that your word would go forward, and that we would be changed by your glorious grace. In Christ's name, amen. Paul has been talking about false teaching right out of the gate. You know, if this is your first week with us in this series, uh, You wouldn't know this, but if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you realize that so far everything we've discussed in this series is about false teaching or correcting false teachers so far. And based on the context and Paul's frequent warring with these people called Judaizers, right? People who demanded that every Christian also become a Jew and fully observe the law and the sacrificial system. It seems very likely that part of the false teaching in Ephesus involved the law in one way or the other. Whether it was a total denial that the law has anything to say, or whether it was the legalism of the Judaizers, the law was necessarily involved because we know from Paul's point here in verse 8, he's saying the law is good if it's used lawfully. Which seems to tell us very clearly that there were some people out there saying the law is bad, and they were trying to use it unlawfully. So Paul is is correcting this here. This is part of his corrective. And and so Paul tells us that the law is good if it's used lawfully. 
didn't say the law is bad or irrelevant or history. Paul says the law is good. And we need to remember that Paul is teaching this to the church in Ephesus. He's teaching this to Christians, to believers, people who've been saved by the grace of God. And so Paul is saying that the law is good for believers even after being saved by grace through faith in Christ. But Paul's qualifier, his caveat here, is that it is good if it is used correctly. Now we know that God's law is good no matter what. But he's saying there are people out there who would seek to change it, to twist it, to use it in an unlawful way. But for us, law is to be used lawfully, and it is good. But how in the world are we to know how to use the law correctly? I mean, we think about the day-to-day life we live here in America or even on, on the smaller scale in Alabama. We know that today not everything that is legal is lawful in God's eyes. Right now, you can do any number of things that are legal, but not wholly and acceptable before God. And so we realize that when it comes to any sort of system, we have to figure it out. So much of our law that we live in in today's physical world is all stuff that is that's cloudy, it's murky, it's an imperfect system. But God's law is perfect and good and true and wonderful. And so we need to know how to handle this stuff carefully, and we need to know how to do it correctly. And Paul helps us with that. Here in these verses, we can see three laws for using the law correctly, and that's what I want to spend our time talking about this morning. Three laws for using the law correctly. Law number one is this. The law is not to be twisted. The law is not to be twisted. Paul says it's good if it's used lawfully. And we read that and it sits kind of weird, right? Because of course the law is lawful, yeah? But no. We know again today in our legal system people will twist the law every which way. And when sinful people grab hold of any sort of set of rules, they will seek to twist and bend and change and manipulate. When it comes to God's law, we can't do that. God's law is good, and we must not twist it or use it in an unlawful way. And really, there are two different ways that people will twist it, and I touched on this a little bit in the introduction. They're nothing new. They've been around since the beginning. But these two ways of twisting the law are called legalism, and then a big fun word called antinomianism. Legalism is obviously that rigorous following of the law where you have to keep every bit perfectly in order to be saved. You've probably heard of legalism before, right? We know what legalistic looks like. It's this, again, it's rigorous. It's, it's, it's painful. It's this, I have to do every bit of this or I'm not saved. Now, antinomianism is not a word I expect you to know, but what it means in simple terms is anti-law. I prefer Dietrich Bonhoeffer's name for it, which is cheap grace. Legalism says you have to do these things to be saved, and cheap grace or anti-law says you don't have to do anything except what you want to do. Legalism says do this, don't do that. Cheap grace or anti-law says do whatever you want. Since I'm free, I'm free to do as I please. 
These are people who think, well, I, I've been freed from sin, I've received God's grace, and so now I can do whatever, and God will still save me. Both of these are horrible twistings of the law and not good uses. And I want to take a moment with each of them and just show you what Scripture says about this. Start with legalism. It's been an issue since Christ's ascension. Paul talks about the Judaizers, who are a prime example of legalism. He was dealing with this literally in the first century, within the first you know, 50 to 100 years after Christ ascended into heaven, they were already dealing with the issue of legalism. Elizabeth Elliot wrote about an instruction manual that was found in a Christian school from the second century. And this is what was said in that instruction manual. It said, a young man asked his teacher, what must I forsake in order to follow Christ? And the teacher responds, colored clothes for one thing. Get rid of everything in your wardrobe that's not white. Stop sleeping on a soft pillow. Sell your musical instruments and don't eat any more white bread. If you're sincere about following Christ, you cannot take warm baths or shave your beard. To shave is a lie against him who created us to attempt to improve on his work. Now, we look at this and we go, what in the world is going on here? Uh, Elliot rightly talks about how absurd this is, and hopefully we can agree. It's ridiculous to think that someone can't be saved based on what color their clothes are, what kind of pillow they sleep on, etc. But legalism is not always so obvious to us. And on the other hand, not everything that calls us to obey the word is legalism. I've met many people who live in violation of God's word, and when you seek to correct them in love, they cry that you're being legalistic. Legalism, at its most basic, is doing the law to be saved, right? It's not obeying Christ because he's Lord of our life. There's a difference. And this is why I say that legalism might be subtle. I'll give you some examples. If you think that it's all up to you, and if you fail in any one aspect of the law that you'll lose your salvation, you're a legalist. I'm not saying to take sin lightly, but if your salvation is based on your ability to keep the law, you are a legalist. And if you fear, if I, if I mess up on this one spot, then, then the Lord's going to just spit me out of his mouth and I'm done and I have no hope. It's legalistic. If you think, oh, well, I'm a good person, right? That classic answer we get when we have evangelistic conversations with people. Oh, I'm a good person. The Lord will let me in. You are also a legalist. You think it's on your fulfillment of goodness that you're saved, but it's not. If you think that there's anything you can do to earn God's favor, you are a legalist. That's you. You need to repent. Because Paul tells us rather clearly that if we put any hope at all in our ability to keep the law, we have nullified the grace of God and we've said that Christ died for no reason. Galatians 2.21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. C.J. Mahaney, the pastor of Sovereign Grace Church in Louisville, said it this way. He said, legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to God. 
In other words, a legalist is anyone who behaves as if they can earn God's approval and forgiveness through personal performance. And the implications of legalism are staggering in their arrogance. Legalism claims that the death of Jesus on the cross was either unnecessary or insufficient because it essentially says to God, your plan didn't work, the cross wasn't enough, and I need to add my good works to it to be saved. So this is the thing, many people walk around and they say, well, well, I'm saved by grace and I'm saved because of this faith in Christ. But then again, they feel like they need to add their works to it in order to be saved. And to do that is, is just again to say, I can, Christ didn't do enough. I have to add to it. And so if you're a legalist, whether you're simply the traditional sense of I have to follow the law perfectly in order to be saved, or whether you're one of these people who says, well, you know, I'm saved by grace, but I still have to, you know, do all this just right or I'm going to fall off the edge. Either way, you're saying I can do it without Christ or Christ didn't do enough. And both are wrong. Paul's clear, works of the law, legalism cannot save. Galatians 2.16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Paul continues in Galatians 3.10-14, he says, All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul's point there is very clear. We are all cursed if our reliance is on the law because ultimately anybody who doesn't do all the things written in the book of the law is cursed. The end of the law is death because we can't keep it and the wages of sin is death. But Christ took the death we deserve and he gave us his righteousness so when we stand before God, it is as though we perfectly kept the law like Christ did. Legalism can't save and it is an unlawful twisting of God's law. The other side is that cheap grace, the anti-law, the antinomianism. This is the I'm saved by grace and I have freedom in Christ. I can do whatever I want. And I know that there are some here who have this viewpoint. In a room this size, there are people who are, who are out here saying, hey, I, I'm a believer in Jesus, but I'm going to do what I want. I'm a believer in Jesus, and, and I believe the word, but I'm not going to let it change my opinion or my heart on this issue. See, it's not just, uh, hey, I love the Lord, but I'm going to go get drunk, or I'm going to go sleep around, or I'm going to go commit adultery or murder. It's also, hey, I, I, I love the Lord, but I'm not going to listen to his word on this particular topic. It's the same thing. And it's wrong. You can't have Christ if you don't have Christ as Lord of your life, which means obeying his commands. Now, these cheap grace folks love to talk about Christian freedom. Oh, I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever I want. But here's the thing. 
You were not freed to sin however you want. When we're saved, we're freed from sin, but we are freed to do something else, and that is to follow Christ. The Bible says we're a slave to something, and we have two options. We are either a slave to sin, or we are a slave to Christ. So if we're free from sin, we are a slave to Christ. If we're not a slave to Christ, we're a slave to sin. There is no option. So we're not freed to go on sinning or do what is right in our own eyes. We are freed to do as Christ commands. And this is what drives Paul's outburst in Romans 6.15, where he says, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? And he says, by no means. Of course not. It's absurd. If we are a believer in Christ, we are a slave to Christ, we are a follower of Christ, and Christ is Lord. And so we are to do what he tells us to do. Listen, friends, anti-law, cheap grace, is skim milk. It has the name milk, but it's really just cloudy water. There's nothing there. I love going to a good coffee shop and ordering good coffee. But I have noticed that more and more people who go to coffee shops aren't actually ordering coffee. They think they are, but they're not. For instance, someone will order something like a decaf, sugar-free, skim oat milk latte. Nothing in it is normal. The coffee's not real coffee. The milk is not real milk. Even the sugar is fake. Everything that would make it a latte is gone. It is just a coffee in name only. And that is what cheap grace is. That is what antinomianism is. It's, it's Christianity in name only. But the thing that actually makes us followers of Christ, the surrendering to Christ as Lord by His grace, is not there. It's just a name. So listen, if you're free from sin, you are free to be a slave to Christ, to follow Him by His grace. And so if you're out here living a life with no regard to the commands of God's Word, you are not a believer. If you can look at the clear commands of God's Word and not bat an eye, you are not saved. Don't let your opinions overrule Scripture. That is the, that is the actions of a lost person. And so what we see here is that there are two ditches that you can fall in when it comes to twisting the law. You can say, oh, my hope is in the law and I have to fulfill it in order to be saved. Or you can say, the law doesn't matter and I can do whatever I want. And we can't go in either one of those paths. So that's law number one. Don't twist it in one of those ways. Law number two is that the law is for conviction. The law is for conviction. Verses 9 and 10 speak to this very clearly. Law is not laid down for the just, but for the unjust, the lawless, the disobedient, the ungodly, the sinners, the unholy, the profane, those who strike parents, murderers, sexually immoral, homosexuals, slavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. But I want us to be clear, though. If you're sitting here and you're saying, well, I'm none of those things, you are dead wrong. This is not Paul saying the law does not apply to you if you're just. 
in the sense that because we're saved and justified before God, that now the law doesn't apply and it's not helpful for us in any way. What Paul is doing here is he's saying that the law exists for every one of us. Because ultimately, we are all at least a few of these things. The law speaks to every person listed here, which means it speaks to every one of us because in our default state, we are all unholy, we are all sinful, we are all disobedient, ungodly, and profane. And furthermore, if we've ever looked at a person with lust, we've been sexually immoral. If we've ever hated someone, we've committed murder. And then you take it to this last part, which is just even more of almost a blanket statement here. It says anything that is contrary to sound doctrine. The Greek word for sound there is where we get our English word hygiene. So what it's saying is essentially anything that is unclean. This is what the law is for. So basically this is a blanket statement that says that the law exists for sinners. Who does the Bible say that man is? Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what is the law saying to us and every sinner? Why has the law been given to sinners? At its most basic point, the purpose of the law is to tell us that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Again, Romans 3, 19 through 20 says this, We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, the law exists so that no one can say, I didn't know I was a sinner. The law gives us knowledge of our sin and where we have fallen short. How does it do that? Well, it doesn't have our names in it, right? It's not sitting here saying, well, Colt, you're a sinner. But it does show us very clearly the standard to which we are compared when we compare ourselves. Uh, and when we compare ourselves to God's standard of holiness, we are always found lacking. It's very clear. It shows me where I have failed and where I have sinned before God. It shows me I can never hope in any legalistic salvation because I've already failed to keep the law countless times. The law reveals we're sinners. It convicts us of sin. And so this is the best way for us to, to approach the law and to think about the law is for it to convict us. There are several great illustrations of this. Biblically, back in 2 Kings chapter 22, they're doing some spring cleaning around the kingdom and they discover this book in the basement. They open it and they realize it is the book of the law that has been forgotten about. And upon their discovery of the law, they take it and they read it to the king, Josiah, who's never heard it. And immediately, once he hears the law, he tears his clothes and weeps. Why? The moment Josiah heard the law, he heard all of the things that he had not been doing, that he should have been doing. And he heard all the things that he should have been doing that he wasn't doing. And so if we honestly look at the law, what we realize is we will be convicted. The law does this beautifully. It helps us to, to see contrast. 
Because it's so easy. If we compare ourselves to the world, it's easy for us to say we're not doing too bad. In fact, just this week, uh, Rosalind showed me a, a clip from a testimony from a person online, and she was talking about the, the illustration of, of conviction with a sheep or a lamb. And this woman was saying that if you see a sheep or a lamb in a green grassy field, it looks so white and so pure. But then if you put that same sheep in a field completely covered with snow, the sheep is no longer pure white, but it's actually pretty dirty. And that's how the law works. The law is the pure white holiness of God that we compare ourselves to, and we will never stack up. We'll never be clean enough. We'll never get it right. The law is the standard, and so when we compare our life to it, it will convict us. And so we need to be regularly doing that to both remind us again of our need for Christ, but also to remind us of the tremendous grace that he's shown us. I was this much of a sinner, and yet Christ saved me. Another way of illustrating this is the, is the illustration of light. Okay, When it comes to conviction, light is a wonderful way to do this. A lot of times uh, when I get up, um, specifically like this morning, on Sunday mornings, uh, Rosalind and the kids are, are still sleeping. And so many times I will search through my closet and my drawers with a phone flashlight. And a lot of times I'll pull out a shirt and I'll say, oh, this looks great. And I'll put it on and I'll head to the office. And then when I get here, I look down and under the bright LED lights, I notice a stain on the shirt that a taco left there a few weeks back. Now, the stain was there the whole time. I just couldn't see it until the light was shined upon it. And that is what the law does in our life. The stain is there, right? Sin is there. But it's not until the Holy Spirit enables us to see that sin and convicts us through God's law that we truly see the stain of sin in our life. And so if we neglect the law... What will so often happen is that we'll compare ourselves to the wrong things. We compare ourselves again with the world. And you can always find somebody worse than you are. Or we'll just barely shine a little light on it and move on. Not ever actually examining our lives and examining the sin and the problem that we actually have. And if we never understand our sin, we won't understand our need for Christ. And if we don't understand our need for Christ, we'll never follow him. So if we neglect the law, we have to wonder, well, why is it that people aren't convicted about sin? It's because we've neglected the law. The law is good when it's used lawfully. And the primary use is to convict sinners of their sin. To show us that we need Jesus. And then to remind us this is what Christ has saved us from. That I was 100% guilty and deserving of death and damnation. But Christ took my punishment and I am saved. What grace. What mercy. And so the law is good because it convicts us of sin. No matter who you are, you cannot read the law and realize 
Or, or you can't read the law and it not speak about something that you're doing. Shows us how much grace and mercy we've been shown. So we need to use the law lawfully and look at it in order to be convicted. And we need to look at it in order to be reminded of, again, just what we've been saved from. So the next time you read the law, practically, if you're in your Bible reading plan, uh, and, and depending on what plan you do, you may do this at the beginning of the year, you may do it throughout the year, whatever. But when you're reading the law, don't just read it as history or a system that has passed away. Read it recognizing that this is the standard, and we can never keep it. But Christ provided a better way, the only way. Not only does the law not save now, it never saved. Even then, God was instilling in them their need for a future Savior, someone who was coming. So read it with an eye for conviction. Our third and final law this morning is that the law is to be used with the gospel. It's to be used with the gospel. And this should sound very simple or straightforward. But, but verse 11 says that the sound, that sound doctrine is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God uh, with which I have been entrusted. The issue that Paul is dealing with is that false teachers were using the law in such a way that was contrary to the gospel. We talked about that in the first point at length. But here the argument I'm making is that if we are going to use the law rightly, if we are going to be good stewards of the whole counsel of God as Paul's talking about, if we are going to, uh, this idea again of being entrusted with the gospel is that we should steward it correctly. If we're going to do that, if we're going to make use of the law rightly, then we have to make sure that we are using it in accordance with the gospel. What does that look like? Well, again, it's not salvific. It doesn't save, but the law is a guide. In other words, the law does not save us. We don't do it to save ourselves. We do it in order that we may, uh, again, be guided in righteousness and bear fruit for the Lord. Romans 7, 4 says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Basically, we need to realize that we are dead to the law. Why? So that we may belong to Jesus. Part of belonging to Jesus, again, involves keeping his commandments. And part of that is the law of the Old Testament. And what I'm not saying here is that we need, again, live as Jews. That we need to be out here doing every aspect of the Old Testament system. Because Christ saved us, the ceremonial aspects of the law are fulfilled in him like the sacrificial system. We also see clear statements about things like the dietary laws. But the moral parts of the law, right? Things like the Ten Commandments. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, be holy as I am holy. These are all moral commandments that we find in the law that are very much in play and in line with the gospel that we are to abide by as believers. We don't keep them to be saved. We keep them because we are saved. And this is what God desires in our life. The law should serve 
as a God. Historically, when Christians were thinking about this and, and, and debating it and trying to figure it out um, back in the day, there were, you know, again, several people who had wrong ideas about it. Um, but John Calvin gave three uses when he was talking about the law. He said there's the political use, there's the teaching use, and there's the normal use. And he says the law is helpful politically. In other words, when we think about politics, the law should help us to understand uh, what is right and what is wrong as a society. So when we think about the law as, as Christians, as believers today, we realize that God's law also has impact upon our legal system. It informs how we should vote. Not just on who we should elect, but the kinds of laws that we should support. What makes a law good and right? We don't realize this, but so much of our, um, so many parts of our law as a system today are built upon the uh, Old Testament law that God has laid down. For instance, we go through these things, right and wrong, again, we can evaluate it. Uh, how does this speak to us as a society about things that are right and wrong? For instance, right, one of the primary examples that people love to always go to is that issue of homosexuality. The Old Testament is clear, this is wrong. But it's not just what's wrong, it's also what is right. If we didn't take away, if we didn't have this Old Testament system, uh, and we would not have property rights. We wouldn't understand the concept of damages when uh, things are happening in our life when someone has wronged us. And so when we read the law, it should inform the way that we think about our legal system. What's right, what's wrong as a society? How should we vote? How should we think about laws? How should we act in that way? And that is perfectly in line with the gospel. Secondly, Calvin pointed out that there's also the teaching aspect. Law teaches us what sin is and convicts us of it. We talked about that in our, in our second point there at length. The law teaches us that we need Christ. But that third use, the normative, in other words, what is normal, that's how the law guides us in knowing generally what kind of life God expects from us. Again, his, his standard of righteousness. But not just in the sense that if we don't keep this, we're, we're damned, but in the sense that this is the kind of life we should strive to live. We should strive to, to keep those Ten Commandments, to follow them in our life. We should strive to, to do those things. And so when we come to the Old Testament, we don't read it, again, to be saved by sprinkling sparrows' blood, but we can read it and, and, and we can see that sin always requires punishment. That, that teaches us something of the holiness of God. We read that, that you know, again, when uh, someone's uh, ox gores somebody, this is how things are to be handled. Again, that teaches us about how we are to handle repayment for people when we've done wrong. When we read the Old Testament and it tells us, hey, you are to honor your father and mother. It has a lot to do about how we take care of them when it comes to, uh, again, in old age as well as it does kids who need to listen to their parents. The law touches on every aspect of our life. But whenever we read the law, we need to realize that it is not the end. It is a means to an end. 
The law's purpose is to convict us of sin and point us to Christ. So whenever we read the law, we read it to better understand the gospel. Because it convicts us of sin, it shows us the righteousness that God requires, and it points us to our need for Christ, and it teaches us how to live in a godly way. It is good if we use it rightly. And so my encouragement to you is to always think about the law in terms of the gospel. So we have these three laws. Don't don't twist the law. The law is to be used for uh, conviction. And finally, the law is to be used in accordance with the gospel. As we wrap up, you know, I've been talking about the law today. And I realize that many churches never mention the Old Testament or the law. On any given Sunday, roughly uh, 2% of churches will touch on the law. So I realize that many of you may have never even heard some of this before. You've never really thought about what you're supposed to do with the Old Testament beyond just, again, thinking about the the Bible stories that we read in Sunday school. But here's, here's the thing. What do we do with all this information? Well, first of all, again, we be convicted. If you're here today and you have thought that, that you know, you are just all good enough by yourself, the, the, based on your goodness, you are going to just skate on into heaven and the Lord's going to welcome you. I'm so glad you're here. You did it. You need to be convicted. If at the same time you've put all of your hope and your trust in your works or you're afraid that somehow by failing in works you're going to you know, lose your salvation, you need to be convicted. And if you're out here thinking you can just do whatever you want and that the Lord doesn't care, you need to be convicted. Friends, we can never keep the law. We can't even keep the Ten Commandments. And so you have two options. You can either keep looking at the world and say, I'm doing pretty good, or you can look to the law. Because here's the thing, you will not be judged based on whether you met the world's standard. You will be judged based on God's standard. You can't keep it on your own. That's the thing about God's standard. No matter how many times we look at it, we see that there is no physical possible way for us to keep it. And it is only by the grace of God that we can be saved. So if you're here trying to do it in your own, stop it. Throw yourself on the mercy and grace of Jesus. Look to Christ because he lived the perfect life. He perfectly fulfilled the law as only he could. He took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. So that when we stand before God, it is as though we perfectly kept the law because Christ gave us that. And in order to do that, he had to be treated as though he broke the law. He had to be punished But he rose again. And that gives us a living hope. So if you have never trusted in him, you need to do that. You need to be convicted. You need to follow him. And you need to live the way that he has called you to live. But if you're a believer, you have a distinct responsibility to live a life of thankfulness to him.
to praise him for what he has done, what he has saved you from, that we no longer live under a burdensome system. You know, the Old Testament always shocked me because I was thinking about this. By the time I made one sacrifice, I don't know that I could make it through that sacrifice without sinning, and then I need to go back. It's burdensome. It's weighty. But Jesus says, my yoke is light. How thankful are we for that? And then again, as a believer, seek to live a life that is pleasing to him. doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. What matters is what the Lord thinks. Live a life that is pleasing to God. Let's go to him in a word of prayer. Lord, we come before you today, and Lord, we thank you again for your great word. We thank you for the fact that you have convicted and called us to salvation. For those of us who are believers here, you have done that. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to be thankful. You'd help us to be mindful of what you've done there and pour out the praise that you deserve. And Lord, though, we also want to pray for those people who have not yet been convicted, that even now, as we've heard this word, they would realize that they are in sin. Lord, that you would call them from that, breathe new life into them, and save them by your grace. Lord, we ask that your will be done. Help us to be people who live pleasing lives before you. And Lord, we just ask that you would bless us in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. We would love for you to join us on campus for worship Sunday mornings at 1045. We look forward to seeing you. Have a great week.